this morning we are going to be in Acts chapter 24. And if you have been with us, we've been journeying through this book as we always do. We go verse by verse. We go chapter by chapter. And... I don't know about you guys, I've been super blessed to go through the book of Acts. It's been a lot of fun. It's one of our favorite books, I think, generally speaking, as believers. It's that continuation, if you will, of the Gospel of Luke, as Luke has penned both of these. And to some extent, that book of Acts is still open as we, the church, go out and do and fulfill that great commission. Amen? There's something very valuable as we study this and study this section. And I think about Acts 24. Being one of these sections where, I don't know, you don't really see a great miracle. You don't see them being broken out of prison. On the contrary, Paul has been bound. Paul is sitting in a place that most of us would say, I don't want to do that. But it's amazing the things that we can do when the Lord has called us and filled us with, filled us with His Spirit. Amen? And here's the deal. Is it for our glory? I hope we all know it's not for our glory, right? It's for His glory. And see, what the prosperity gospel and everyone in this, in this general church in America, what they love to do is make everything in church about us. And let's be clear, we have something to do about this, right? <laughs> but all of it's for the glory of the Lord. All of it is for His kingdom's sake, for His glory. We are blessed to be a part of it. And I don't know about you guys, but I think about it all the time. How in the world did the Lord think it was a good idea to give His people, this people, me, a broken vessel, you guys, right? His spirit to go further His kingdom. Did He need us? No. Did He want us? Yes. Can I just tell you this morning that the Lord loves you and He desires you to trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Without trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, there is a true reality of a real hell. And see, this is why Paul understands that his life in jail, in the greater scheme of things, he's willing to give that up on this life for the sake of telling and testifying of the gospel that others might be spared of an eternity separated from God. Amen? And so this morning in Acts 24, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a delegation. We're going to see a defense. And we're going to see a decision of sorts. But if you're at Acts 24, say I'm there. Awesome. Look at verse 1. It says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So you know how I do. I do this almost every week, and you probably get scared because I only read one verse. You're like, there's 27. How's he ever going to get through this, right? The first verse, though, is where our setting is. We have to understand what we're looking at. And it jumps right into this. It says, after five days. You're like, well, after five days of what? If you remember what's happened so far, Paul has been arrested and moved from a barrack in Jerusalem that was run by the Romans. They arrested him because supposedly he had started a giant riot at the temple because he hates Jews so much, okay? The Hebrew of Hebrews. <laughs> and so this whole riot started and the Jewish people that were so zealous they were going to kill Paul over false accusations and allegations. But the commander, Lysias, he came out and he took Paul, brought him into the barracks and said, he's going to get destroyed by these people. We don't even know what's happening. And then Paul tried to preach the gospel to them. He said that the Gentiles were included in God, the God of Israel's plan for salvation. And they lost their marbles, right? They freaked out. They wanted to destroy Paul. The commander has no idea what's happening. They're speaking Aramaic the whole time. So the commander takes Paul and remember he almost scourged him to get answers out of him. But Paul says, no, I'm, I'm a Roman citizen. 
Yes, I'm a Jew, but I'm also a Roman. And he says, what do I do with this guy? All the Jews were so mad he wasn't being killed. Forty-plus men said, we're going to make an oath to God that if Paul is living, no way, we're not eating or drinking until he's dead. I don't know how bad you've had it in the Lord. I haven't had 40 people make an oath to not eat or drink until I'm dead. That's pretty gnarly, right? And I'm kind of a wicked dude, I think. And generally speaking, I'll come to the Lord, praise the Lord. But I haven't had 40 men say, James has to die and we're not going to eat, right? Think of Paul's discouragement, fear. And then the Lord Jesus showed up and said, be of good cheer, Paul. You're going to testify in Rome. And see, what happened was to avoid this plot to kill Paul, Claudius Lysias, he said, hey, we have to get you out of the town. We have to get you from Jerusalem. We're going to send you up to Caesarea. And so he'd basically been in Caesarea in prison for five days, it seems like. That's where we're at right here. And what we're waiting for, what they've been waiting for, is for Ananias the high priest to come with the religious leaders of Jerusalem and of the, of the Jews to testify against Paul. We're basically going to have a court hearing before the governor who is Felix. Does that make sense where we're at? That was a lot of stuff. Is that good? All right, we have to have context, right? There's nothing worse. That's like trying to watch Back to the Future 2 when you haven't seen the first one. You're like, they, what are they doing? What's happening here? They're in the future? They're in the past? What? This is the context that's here. And so it says that they had this man, this orator named Tertullus. An orator is a guy that basically, that word oral, right? He is a speaker. He's a polished speaker. He's a lawyer of sorts. And what he does is he's going to show up and he's going to try to paint a picture for Felix that hopefully will convict Paul of all these accusations. And it says that he came, he came with all these people and they came to give evidence. The better word here is probably to inform or to exhibit the things that they were saying. Because let's be clear, as we see here, there is no evidence of anything that Paul did wrong. <laughs> He actually, there's no eyewitnesses. There's no evidence of the things they're accusing him of. But what they're doing is they're trying to paint this picture. We want to get Paul killed. And I don't know about you, but this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Yeah, you guys know that verse. Cool. So, <laughs> Jesus was constantly falsely accused to the point to where they wanted him killed. Why? Because he brought a message that said the law was not enough to save you. You needed to be born again. Paul is just repeating the same message. He's getting the same results at this point. And it's interesting because we have this really polished speaker and look what happens in verse 2 through 4. He begins his opening statement. It says, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. <laughs> so here's this slick lawyer, Tertullus, shows up, he gets an opening statement. And the first thing he's doing, he's just kissing up to Felix, which is blatant flattery, right? Can I tell you, someone that likes to lie like these men do, they also have no problem with flattery. Can I tell you what flattery is? It's lying. <laughs> because what it is, even if the thing is true that you're saying, your heart in, the, in that idea of flattery is you're using it for your advantage. You're saying this so that you can get your will to be done. You're saying this so that you can take advantage of something. 
And I don't know about you guys, but I think about how many times the Scripture talks about things like this. I think of when Jude said in Jude 1.16, he said, They mouthed great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. He was talking about those, those apostates, right? They would come into a church and they'd say such great, beautiful things. And everyone's like, I like that guy. But in reality, they were wicked. They were dark. I think about Proverbs. It's Proverbs 29.5. It says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And I don't know where you guys are at today, but there's a temptation, is there not, when we are in the workplace? And there might be times in your marriage where you think, you know what would be nice? Flattery. It'll get me what I want. But in the workplace, we can use these things to try to gain a foothold on things. And can I tell you? It's essentially a lie. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect man, amen? Have respect for the offices that they've been put in. But man, to come out and flatter like this. Can I tell you why Tertius is doing this? Because he has no evidence of any crimes against Paul. He knows that if he was to stand up there and say, hey, I, I got a closed-door case. Here's the evidence right here. He doesn't have that. So he says, oh, Felix, you're so... I mean, look at this thing, he says. He says... We enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to our nation by you. History says this of this Governor Felix. It says he was a horrible man and a worse governor. <laughs> That's what history says, secular history. This man was immoral. He was self-aggrandizing. He was absolutely self-centered. He just, anything he felt like doing, he did. And he was once a slave that his brother helped through political connections make his rise all the way to governor. So they said he ruled like a slave. <laughs> this was a man that was bitter. This was a man that would do anything without regard for the office. And he was a, a, a gnarly guy. And the Jews suffered greatly under him. He would massacre Jews. He didn't take any kind of, of patience. He didn't, had no patience for the Jews. If there was someone accused of being insurrectionist, he would normally, brutally torment these people. And they're coming over here and they're using words in the Greek that relate to like tranquility. <laughs> oh, Felix, you just make everything so just tranquil and peaceful. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much, Felix, right? These are like the Jews and they've hired this classy Roman dude to speak on their behalf. It's just so gross to watch because I don't know if you've seen this. You watch some high-level court case. There's many of them recently. <laughs> You're like, man, all this thing is, it's all lies. Everyone's lying to each other. Why don't they just bring evidence out and just end the case? Unfortunately, justice has been perverted by men, amen? <laughs> Praise the Lord that we have a faithful, just, righteous God. Paul, in this case, he's not an orator. Paul said in Corinthians, man, I don't speak all that great. <laughs> I'm kind of a mess when I talk. He says, people, I show up and they're expecting this guy that wrote these bold letters and then I come up stuttering or something, you know, and people are like, that's Paul? Imagine if he had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tertullus in this match of words, Paul should be scared. But what's better is Paul has lived in a way that there's no evidence to accuse him of the things that these people are lying about because he's lived unto the Lord. Amen? So you take all this into account and look at what happens in 5 through 9. They start their case, right? They say, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. 
He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, he came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So, okay, so he opens his case with flattery. He's like, look, he says at one point, like, hey, your time is super valuable. We won't, won't want to be tedious. I think that's a cover-up because it's like we don't have anything to talk about because he's, he's innocent. They're like, but we don't want to take your time, Felix. Here's the situation. And in verse 5, he says, this man is a plague. That word right there, it's this gnarly word. It's loimus in the Greek. It means a pesty disease. <laughs> And he's saying, this man is just a disease. He's a pest. He's an insurrectionist that's bent on just destroying everything about the Jews. He says in verse 6, right? I'm sorry, in verse 5, he says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This is the direction that Tertullus is trying to go with this case. He says, this guy over here, A, he hates the Jews. He hates Judaism. And then he's part of this sect, this cult that follows that guy from Nazareth. Do you understand? Nazareth did not have a good reputation, right? Nazareth, according to John 1.46, when Nathaniel and Philip were talking, oh, the Messiah is here. Oh, really? Yeah, he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Compton or Watts? That's what we used to think in California, right? This reputation, gangster rap, drive-bys, right? And it's not true. Good things can come from there, okay? But there's this thought of, you're like, I don't want to go vacation in Compton or Watts. <laughs> in this case, man, you wouldn't go down to Nazareth just to hang. That was a bad area of town. And they're saying, Paul, he runs some weird cult that hates what is approved by Rome. See, this is where he's going. Judaism was an approved religion of Rome. You could practice that. What Tertius is trying to do is say, this guy practiced something so different, and he's trying to, he's a threat to Rome, and he's a threat to order. Remember, the Roman governors, their job was to keep peace in the region, right? They don't want the Jews uprising against the Romans, and they definitely don't want some weird court showing up doing all these weird things, and that's how he's trying to paint it. And it says, we try, he tried to profane the temple. <laughs> Like, what kind of accusation is that? He tried. <laughs> Did he? Didn't he? Is that attempted? What, is this? what does this look like? He's like, well, he tried. We'll say that because we don't have evidence that he did anything. He thought about doing such a thing. We're pretty sure. That's kind of what it sounds like. <laughs> and it's funny. I don't know if you've been there, but people will accuse you sometimes of what you're thinking. I don't know if you've been there. I've been in this case many times. I think I've been on both sides of this where someone makes a decision for one reason or the other. And I take that one isolated decision. I don't know what's happening in their life. I don't know anything about them on a real level. And I'm like, oh, I know everything about him now because I heard something one time. <laughs> I mean, we laugh because I think we all do this, right? They say first impressions, they last forever, right? Someone shows up and they just say something crazy like, that guy's crazy. That's, that's it. Done with it, right? You may think that of me this morning. But the reality is... We don't know the story of the person we're judging in that case. And all we're doing when we hear these false accusations, we go, oh, I heard this guy. This guy is so this and that because one time he did this thing, so I heard through three other people. I talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm going to talk about it again. God forbid we allow that in the church. 
Can I tell you as a church in its infancy, which praise the Lord, I love seeing new faces. That's great. But we were in my living room like eight months ago. It was really easy to not have gossip because you had to deal with everyone you had right in front of you every week. But as a church grows, feelings get hurt. And usually, I'll tell you, I've been in ministry long enough to know this. There's three sides to every story. There's his, there's hers, and there's the truth. Everyone is perceiving everything in their own way based on everything. And verbal communication, can I tell you, is the worst form of communication. There's no backspace. There's no, let me cut that, rephrase that, let me change this. People will say something with the most kindest, gentle intention. And it's heard some way and told to someone else another way. And eventually it turns and that guy's an enemy of the church. God forbid that happened in this church. I'm telling you right now, if there is bitterness, if there is gossip, if there is hurt feelings, the Bible tells us if your brother has something against you, go lay down that gift, go deal with him before you come to the altar, amen? Not if you have something with your brother. That's interesting. Because you could say, oh, dude, I've lived peaceably with all men, but you know someone has some understanding, misunderstanding of what you are and what you've done. You need to go prove to them as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, it says in Romans 12, 18. I'll tell you the reason the church gets so messed up is because people don't deal with sin directly one-on-one -on -one with people. They tell everyone else about it that's not involved. Can I tell you we're not going to do that here at this church? <laughs> we'll pray for you as the leadership, and then we're going to guide you. Go talk to that brother or sister. Amen? That's what we do. And now it's not in my notes, so I think that's something in the room. Deal with it, amen? <laughs> so here we go, looking at the rest of that section there in 5 and 9. It also, 5 through 9, it says that we tried to judge him according to our law. We're just good guys trying to bring in justice. So Tertullus is saying to the Jews, do you remember what actually happened in Acts 21.35 and Acts 23.10? They tried to tear Paul to pieces. <laughs> They tried to kill him. They tried to destroy him. And this guy's saying, hey, these guys are good civil men. They would never do such a thing. Actually, Felix, it was your commander that showed up and took him with great violence. <laughs> Lysia showed up because they were going to destroy and kill Paul. He protected Paul in that instance. And remember, it's funny because Lysias wrote a letter already to Felix explaining that. This guy doesn't even know. He's digging himself in a hole. He's saying, oh, no, it's your people. They were violent. Who do you think Felix is going to believe? His own commander or this paid high-profile lawyer? <laughs> he's like, no, he's probably just listening to this like, okay, sure. Lie after lie after lie. It's just totally distorted. And he says, and then he made us come up here and tell these things to you. He says, but look, if you examine him, you'll figure out that he's a criminal. Do you see what Tertullus is doing at that? Why don't you talk to him? Maybe something will be exposed. We have nothing to tell you about. We have some accusations. We have no evidence. But hopefully as he speaks to you, maybe you'll start to hate him too and you can kill him for your sake. Go talk to him some more. Figure it out. This isn't a case. This is a waste of time in the normal court system in Rome. Where's the evidence? Where's the eyewitnesses? And see all the religious leaders, it says in verse 9, they showed up and they just agreed with all of this. Tell you how terrifying is that, that the people that believed they were consecrated to the Lord, the leadership, were like, let's go with this. Let's go ahead for our benefit to protect our power and prestige. Let's just lie like this is the truth. And man, there's going to be such a harsh judgment for people that profess to know God, walk with God, and say that they're doing the work of the Lord. And in reality, they're completely walking in unjust. Unjust ways 
just doing wickedness. So this morning, I pray that all of us will keep our account short with the Lord. Amen? Look at the end of verse 9 there when it says, again, they agreed to these things. So that closes that part. They come and they bring their delegation. Look what it says, verse 10 through 13. We see Paul's defense. It says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Paul's smart. Paul may not be the best speaker compared to Tertullus, but you know what Paul knows? Is that everything that's being said right now is a lie. Have you ever been in a spot where everyone's lying about you or rumors, reputation begins? I don't know if you've been there and you want to fight back to rumors and lies. Why? They're not true, right? I get it. It's not just, it's not right. But you know what Paul's doing here? He says, I'm just going to blatantly state that none of that's true. <laughs> I'm not going to call them names right now. I'm not going to point out all the wickedness necessary that they've done. I'm just going to tell you that we're standing here and I'm on defense today. I'm not here to go on the offense. I'm here just to tell you none of this is true. He says in verse, verse 10, he says, look, it, you've been a judge for many years. He says, I'm happy to get a chance to just tell you what I've been doing because I'm going to trust you. You're going to see there's no case here. And so what he says in verse 11, he says, look, it, it's been no more than 12 days since I went to Jerusalem to worship. So let's do the math on this. Verse 1 said for five days he's been in Caesarea, right? So for seven days, he's been there. He came in on the, for the day of Pentecost. He was there. Remember, they didn't even complete the Nazarite vow. It didn't even get to completion. It was almost completed. So it was like a week he was in Jerusalem. So one week, he, Paul has supposedly created this entire movement around himself. That during the time of Pentecost, where millions of extra Jews are in town, Paul convinced that many people to come and follow him and start a riot at the temple in one week without social media, <laughs> without a phone, right? Oh, I'm going to get everyone to rally around where he said this. He's like, it's kind of ridiculous. But second of all, I wasn't there for a riot. I was there to worship. This is huge. You're accusing a guy of being anti-Jew. And why was he at the temple? He was there to worship. This is not looking good for all those accusations so far. And then he continues in verse 12. He says, not only did they not find me in the temple, they didn't find me in any synagogues that were like stirring up any trouble. They didn't find me anywhere in the city doing anything like that. And I think this is an awesome, important thing to remember. 1 Peter 3.16. It says, a good conscience is what we need to possess that we may not be defamed as evildoers. So that we can revile those. They can't revile our good conduct in Christ. And so the reality is people will try to accuse you of, oh, he did this, he did that. As long as you didn't do it. <laughs> can I tell you? To some extent, I get it. Words can carry a great weight. Do we understand that? But there's a reality that the actions always speak louder than the words. If everyone who experienced Paul and was around him said, dude, I don't know about that rumor. He's been nothing but a good guy unto the Lord. He shows up at the temple to worship. Are you sure you have your facts right on this case? 
And so Paul's saying, look, at, I did these things. I was always trying to live uprightly before God. I'll tell you, if we desire to live uprightly before the Lord, I don't know what you're going through at your workplace, at your, with your family, <laughs> maybe even here at church, wherever, where people are accusing you of certain things. I hope that you can point at your life and that others would point at your life and say, I don't really believe that. Amen? Don't just be hearers of the Word of God. Be doers. That way we don't deceive ourselves, as James 1.22 says. Continue to do those things. And look what happens in 14 through 16. Paul is going to explain his faith of this supposed sect. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Tertullus was working to show, trying to show that Christianity, referred to as the way in this section, that's what they called the church, right? The early church was the way. Christianity, followers of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, right? He says, they're calling this a sect. They're trying to make us look like we have nothing to do with the approved religion of Judaism. He says, but can I tell you, again, I just said I was at the temple to worship. He says, what I'm doing is I worship the God of my fathers, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, of the law, and of the prophets. He says, that's where my hope is. My hope is in that same God, which they themselves, speaking of the Pharisees, of course, says they believe in a resurrection from the dead. They believe that everyone, just and unjust, will stand before God. He says, and that's what I'm doing here. I'm just telling you that this is a fulfillment it's not a separation or an abandonment of the Old Testament. He says, my faith is a fulfillment of everything the Old Testament spoke of. Have you ever heard the term, a completed Jew? Great term, I love it. Jewish people, Jewish by heritage, they call themselves completed Jews when they've put their trust in Jesus Christ. There's a whole organization called Jews for Jesus. I would recommend you look it up. It says you can be a Jew and you can also be for Jesus. That's on their main page. <laughs> there was this idea that unless, if you go out and you start following Jesus, you're not a Jew anymore. And so what Paul is saying is, man, everything that I'm doing it's actually because of the vehicle that is the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. As I studied those as a child, as I came up at the feet of Gamaliel, when I heard and had this experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, at that point, all of those things, that they always spoke of this. They clicked and brought me into that full, completed faith that it was always about a Messiah. It was always about a Savior who would come and save us from our sins. Amen? And he says, this is the faith that I have. This is what I have. I believe that there's going to be a resurrection just as they do. That both the just and the unjust will have to stand before God. Paul wrote about this, right? He wrote about this in Romans 8.3. He said, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. 
He condemns sin in the flesh. There is sin that needs to be judged. And your keeping of the law, your church attendance, <laughs> your morality, none of those things are going to give you righteousness before the Lord. 1 John 2.1 says, when we sin, God forbid, but when we sin, we have an advocate before the Father. And who is that advocate? It's Jesus Christ. Amen. Think about that. As we're standing in this court, Paul has no advocate in front of him in the courtroom. <laughs> he, they got Tertullus over here advocating on their behalf. Paul's like, man, I'm going to show up and the Lord is going to fight my case for me. Can I tell you, this is the same situation we have with eternity. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will have an advocate and his righteousness is accounted to you. Amen? But if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. No one. And no other way. There's no other way to do it. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God according to John 3.3. 3. That was Jesus that said that. Jesus also said in John 5, 24, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in God who sent me has everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, and has passed from death into life, speaking of eternity. You must put your trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says, we believe in this resurrection. The problem is the way they think they can justify it. They believe that justification comes through that approved law of Judaism. I'm telling you that that law was a tutor to bring me to faith in Christ, as he wrote in Galatians 3.24. Amen? The whole Old Testament is not disregarded. Jesus said, I'm not here to abolish it. I'm here to fulfill it. Because of Jesus' life, because of his work, because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection... We know that we get to stand before the Lord and we will be found righteous because of what Jesus has done. And he says, man, they're just, they're reading the same thing, but they're coming to the wrong conclusion. If you've approved their temple for worship, if you've approved their law, we're not that far from it. We're just a completion of it. It's part of what we do. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. And it's awesome because in verse 16, he says, look, it, I have a clean conscience, not only before God, but also before men. I tell you when that, there was a young man that came to Jesus, and he said, what's, I believe it was a lawyer, right? And he said, what's the most important commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your soul. He said, the second thing you need to do is kind of like it. <laughs> he says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. See, when we love the Lord God, when we strive to live uprightly before Him, guess what it does to everyone else around us? We live uprightly. I've told people, you can't legislate a heart change, right? You can try to make good laws. But if everyone put their faith in Jesus Christ today, which I'm sorry, it doesn't happen according to the Bible, but if they did, and everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit, can I tell you, the law would almost be insignificant and useless to us. Because the law can just tell us what not to do. The Holy Spirit tells us what to do. Go love. Go care for your neighbor. Go seek justice for the oppressed. And we're talking about when Jesus came, the oppressed in sin, amen? There is an eternity that waits everyone and a judgment that awaits everybody. What am I doing busy, like being busy hating everyone around me? If I love the Lord my God, I should love my neighbor as myself. 
And can I tell you what's so cool about those quotes? Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 when he gave those commandments. The Jewish old law, the Old Testament law. So you're like, oh, well, Jesus was great. Jesus was a fulfillment of the law. Paul says, I'm walking in the fulfillment of that, in the faith of that. And in verse 17 to 21, he explains his conduct while in Jerusalem. He says, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else, let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before their council, which was the Sanhedrin that we saw last week. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. And so what Paul's doing is he's saying, you want to know why I came to Jerusalem, this big anti-Jewish insurrectionist? I came to bring a gift to the poor Jewish people. <laughs> like, that's not really the behavior of an anti-Jewish insurrectionist, right? We're told about this in Romans 15, 26, that he gathered those funds from the church in Macedonia, from the churches in Achaia, and he took it all together and he calls it my nation in verse 17. This isn't an us versus them. I'm with them. They're my people. They just haven't come to the completed faith that I have. He says, I pray that they would. I wish that they would, but they haven't done so. He says, but when I was there, these Jews from Asia, remember it was Pentecost, so all the Jews came from all over the place. And these Jews from Asia, they heard the rumor about Paul. They stirred up the crowd, and I believe it was in Acts 26, 27, and 28, the verses 27, 28, where... They said, Paul, men of Israel, you've got to get him. This man hates everything about us. He hates the law. He hates the people. And he wants to profane and defile the temple. I mean, think about that statement. It's kind of weird. I was studying Daniel 8 this week. And I was thinking about this whole idea of like Antichrist Epiphanes and how he defiled the temple or the Antichrist to come who was going to do such things. It's like they're making Paul to be the Antichrist. <laughs> he hates the Jews. He's going to defile the temple. Kill that guy right now. And it's wild because in that case when they were doing this, they had no reason to actually say this. There was no evidence. But Paul says, hey, those people that cried that out when I was there, why aren't they here in the courtroom? Where'd they go? Why aren't they here? Can I tell you in Roman court, if, you're, if the evidence wasn't there and your eyewitnesses were not there, it could actually turn into a case against you because you've wasted the court's time. What Paul's trying to do here, I think he's like, this sounds like you have a little problem, guys. You're trying to do this to me, but I object because you don't have the people here. Felix, I think you should maybe talk to them about this. <laughs> I think these guys, maybe you should try them instead of me. I've done everything right. And he says in 20 and 21, he says, well, there is one thing maybe they could try to get me for. I said that I believe in the resurrection from the dead. He says, but you know what happened when I said that before the Sanhedrin? In Acts 23, 9, the Pharisees said, we find no evil in this man. We talked about this. Luke is writing an account to show that Paul was not a threat to Rome. He was not a criminal. Walking in Jesus Christ will not make you a terrible person for society. On the contrary, it's saving the souls of the lost. And so Paul says, look, at, if they want to accuse me of that, maybe, but ask them about what they said. They said, I'm innocent. So Paul's like, why are we here? 
These guys may sound real fancy, but it makes no sense. So you guys get what's happening here, right? Look at how it ends here. We have this decision of sorts. Look at 22 to 23. It says, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, or Christianity, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So basically what happens here in verse 22 and 23 is we have Felix considering everything that's just been said. These rumors of what's been said to Paul, and I think Felix is thinking, these guys just tried to flatter me right off the bat. <laughs> they have no evidence. They aren't even speaking for themselves. They hired this high-power attorney guy. And I got Paul who's just walking up and is like, man, like, just ask people. That's not what I do. It's not what I've done. And he explains so clearly what he actually believes. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15. It says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In this case, he says, look, I'm just going to show up. I'm going to tell them what I believe. I'm going to tell them why I'm standing here without an advocate in this case. I'm not fearful because I didn't do anything illegal. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm practicing the very thing that's approved by Rome to a completed faith. And so Felix says, it says that after he had a better, a more accurate understanding of the way. Do you know what that means? That means that Felix had some understanding of the way originally, but it was not accurate. It was lacking what he needed to know, which was the truth. And I think this is interesting because, again, we talked about it earlier, but many people will make judgments based on things that are inaccurate. They will make assumptions of your life based on one decision you made, and you may have made that decision for good reason. People don't understand it, and they turn that into a thing where, oh, man, that guy's guilty of every sin under the sun because of that. I'm not talking about sin. I hope I'm clear on that. I'm talking about things where people go, why do they live that way? Why don't they do this thing? You have to answer to the Lord, amen? We are responsible for our yes being yes before the Lord. And as we live unto the Lord, people sometimes will think, oh man, he doesn't like us. He doesn't like me. I don't know if you've ever had that with your family. Right now, there might be a birthday party at someone's house that you can't be at because you're committed to coming here at church. And they're like, you're a weird fanatic. You're part of a sect of the way, right? And it's funny because when football season starts, they're going to have their own cult and sect, right? <laughs> they're going to have their own thing they gather for on Sunday morning. We do this because it is the truth and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday, amen? Hopefully every day. <laughs> but the reality is in this case, he says, man, I kind of understand a little bit better now what you're saying. I used to think all of these off-putting bad things and you say, well, how would he get these rumors? He ruled over the region where Christianity was starting to move. It was starting to run, right? He says, I've heard all kinds of things, but who's he hearing it from? Probably from the Jewish religious leaders who hate Christianity. And his wife, Drusilla, who we're going to see was a Jewess. She was a Jewish woman. And she probably went with, the, with, went with all the rumors and everything and said, yeah, no, Christianity, that's gnarly, man. You've got to be careful. They're going to come for the throne. They're going to come for, for Rome. And so Felix, he's like, man, I'm, I don't know. You sound like pretty upright guy even this wicked dude Felix is like man I don't know what to do with this I don't know how to handle this so what it says in verse 23 was that he commanded the centurion to keep Paul but to let him have liberty he told me your friends can still visit you they can still come to you he basically put him on house arrest and this seems weird because think about it he 
he knows to give him liberty like this this harsh governor who loved persecuting Jews he says I'm going to give you some liberty I think that he knows in that moment man this isn't true you're innocent but my pride will not let you walk free for two reasons he's a politician <laughs> he needs to save face and keep all of his political relationships including the religious leaders of the Jews he doesn't want them thinking that he's siding with Paul and he doesn't want Rome to think that he's a sympathizer with this weird sect Christianity because even though he knew more about it now accurately, all his friends and, and you know, peers didn't know about it. So he says, man, I don't feel good. My conscience forbids me to make him a common criminal, but my pride forbids me from just letting him go. That's just like so wicked, right? And he, he's trying to play that proverbial fence. He's trying to stay in the middle. He's trying to stay neutral. He's basically being indecisive, really. Look at 24 through 27. This is where we end today. It says, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Some things don't change with politicians. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Pontius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So it's kind of a bummer ending when we're reading it. We're like, man, I thought Paul was going to get out of here. I think most churches would try to find a way to make it seem like Paul's a free man and he's good and you just trust Jesus and everything's going to be great. You're going to be free today, right? We're freed spiritually in Jesus. Amen? Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Our hope is not in this temporal thing. Our hope is in the kingdom to come and that we serve that kingdom that lies ahead. This may seem to man like a lost battle. This is going to further the process of getting Paul where he needs to go for the Lord's glory. But it's interesting. It says in 24 that after some days, so Paul's been on house arrest for some time, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla. So they were somewhere. I don't know if they're on business or vacation, whatever it is. They show back up, and it says that he sent for Paul. And he heard him concerning the faith in Christ. I don't know if they had like a gnarly marriage argument while they were on vacation or something. They're like, let's go talk to the Christian guy that's supposed to be like a pastor or something. I don't know. Let's go talk to him. Or maybe they're like, hey, we heard more like rumors about Christianity. Let's go ask Paul about those rumors. Maybe, maybe there was a stirring in their heart. They said, man, Paul is an upright dude. We have him in jail. We feel kind of convicted about this. Maybe we should go talk to him. And it's interesting because Drusilla... She was the great-granddaughter of Herod who had all the Jewish babies killed in Matthew 2. Her uncle is Herod that killed John the Baptist. Her dad is the Herod who actually killed James the Apostle. These are not, uh, this is not a good pedigree and, and lineage, right, when it comes to Christianity and its interactions thereof. Here's Drusilla, and you have this wicked, carnal, just fleshly man, Felix, Used to be a slave, now he's a governor. And these two come to Paul. And can I tell you what I love here in verse 25? Paul reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. 
There are so many churches this morning that do not want to talk about things like righteousness, which comes through Christ alone. They do not want to talk about self-control. That has to do with sin. No one likes to be told they're sinners. Just a reminder, we're all sinners in this room. <laughs> we need to be offended to realize that we need a Savior. Amen? And then he tells them about a judgment to come. This is the gospel. The reality is that you cannot earn your righteousness, that Jesus' completed work is the only way to receive righteousness. And when you receive it, you walk in a self-control in regards to your old ways. Now, here's, here's the good news. The Lord has given us a helper, the Holy Spirit, that we get to yield to Him and He works in us. Amen? He empowers us to walk against the ways we used to live. And He says, why would you do such a thing? Because you know that there's a judgment that will come, the same judgment He spoke of earlier. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 25. It's a reality. There is an eternal judgment coming to all men. Either separation from God in, in a true hell. Jesus said it, not me. Jesus did in Matthew 25, 41 and Matthew 25, 46. But then Jesus went and died on a cross so you don't have to go there. And he rose again to show that everything he said was true. Yes, there's a real hell, but yes, there's a payment for sins. And he is the completion of that. You put your faith in him, you confess at your mouth that he is Lord, and you walk in his ways. But it's interesting John 16, 8, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. You know what it says the Holy Spirit's going to do? It's going to convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. The very things that Paul's talking about. When you talk about the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes and does his job. And he convicts the hearts of men. He bangs, that, that heart banging upon your rib cage. It's like, man, this is true. This is real. This isn't a fairy tale. It sounds too good to be true, but it's true. The Lord Jesus has done the completed work. All you have to do now is put your faith in Him. And He, through His power, through the Holy Spirit, will sanctify you and give you that self-control until that day of glorification when judgment comes. Amen? And see, in this case, Felix says that Felix was afraid. <laughs> I'd be afraid too if I was living in sin and Paul starts telling me all this. Hey, you know you're going to stand before God and answer for everything you're doing. It's like, dude, stop talking, please. Right? We've all felt this. To the one where the aroma of death leading to death, to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. That's what it tells us in Corinthians. People that are in sin don't want to hear that they're sinners and that there's a judgment coming. But can I tell you in this case, Felix says, look it, I'm going to come back to you when it's more convenient. You know what that means? Felix heard everything that Paul was saying. He just didn't want to deal with it today. There are so many people, I know because I lived this way for a long time, they show up into church, they hear exactly what the Lord's saying, they even get that heart pressing from the Holy Spirit and it scares them. And they say, you know what? I mean, I'll deal with that later. <laughs> Can I tell you, that's Satan's, like one of his best tactics, is to tell you that you have the rest of time, the rest of eternity to figure this out. I believe it's Proverbs 27.1. It says, that, Do not boast about tomorrow, for no man knows what a day may bring forth. The book of James, we're told, Hey, don't make plans for tomorrow. Just say, Lord willing, because you don't know. The very breath in your lungs was given you by the Lord. And no man is promised tomorrow. Amen? Man, when you hear this message, don't run from it. It's not... If you respond correctly, it will not be condemnation. It's conviction leading you into salvation. But if you fight against it and instead of receiving it, you resist it, there's going to come a day 
where if you resist it unto death, it's unforgivable. And you will have to stand before, the God with, before God the Father with no advocate because you rejected the Lord Jesus, who the Holy Spirit testified of to your heart. And so today, if you're feeling that, I'll tell you, don't say you'll do this later. Do it now. It says in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And see, in this case, I think it's interesting, it just tells us in, 20, in 27 here, it says that after two years, Pontius Festus had succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul bound. See, we were told, just like I, I joke about it, but we know this is nothing new to politics, right? The politician going, hey, man, I know you're innocent and everything, but will you pay me some money and I'll let you go? It's like, what? That's so wicked. It's so unjust. To us, we read that and we're like, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. We totally get this. It's so sad. This is after hearing the gospel, after being convicted, he's still living in sin, in injustice. He's coming to him and he's saying, hey, give me some money and I'll let you go. You know, I'm like, and you know what's awesome? Paul lived uprightly before men. Paul never gave him the money. How many times would say, oh man, I'd pay anything to get out of this situation? Paul says, I'm here because the Lord wants me here. I could probably call the church and get a gathering and get some money and get out of here right now. But the Lord in his wisdom and his guidance is telling me I need to be here. And he stays there. And it's, it's, Felix is eventually replaced by Festus. We know in history, Felix never got his self-control down. The guy was always a maniac. There was a, a big, giant insurrection that happened between the Jews and the Romans. And basically, he thought it was a good idea to tell his Roman troops, hey, go ahead and go in and loot all the homes of the Jewish people while you're down there. That's, go ahead, that's fair. And of course, everyone found that out that he gave that approval. He was removed from office. And then we have Festus taking his place. You've got to wonder... What would this ruler, this governor, had looked like had he submitted to Jesus Christ when he had the opportunity? Would his reign look very different? I believe so. I believe if he submits to the Lord Jesus back here in verse 25, 27, maybe it doesn't happen. At least it doesn't happen the way it, it, it does. Can I tell you, there's a benefit in following the Lord Jesus. The Lord honors his word above his name, amen? If we live opposed to his word in everything that we do, can I tell you, the Lord can't bless that because it would make his word untrue. He counsels us, don't do X, Y, and Z, and we go do them. We're mad that there's consequences. You follow the Lord and he gives you a spirit. You do what his word says. Guess what happens? You live a blessed life. And I'm not talking about mansions and race cars, okay? Hear me out here. Not prosperity. I'm talking about that beautiful, quiet, good life where you are upright in the eyes of the Lord and upright before men because you walk in his ways. Felix did not surrender to the Lord and his life was basically uprooted because of it. Can I tell you this morning, this may be the last opportunity that you have to put your trust in the Lord. We are not promised tomorrow. We don't know what can be happening. We don't even know what's happening with that car out there right now, right? I see everyone looking. I know, it's honking. I don't know. I hope that's not mine. But, like, the reality is we don't know what's going on out there. We don't know what tomorrow brings, amen? Right now, I can tell you this. We know that there's an eternal God. There's a judgment to come. But the price has been paid in Jesus Christ. Salvation is today. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Let's pray.